You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. the giant fish they caught in Oneida Lake? I did, but I'm not really sure, like, what's the big deal around it? How, how big was it? Like, oh, it's so exciting. They caught a 139-pound sturgeon in Oneida Lake. That is bigger than me. Yeah, and me, probably. <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, I know the fishing is good in Oneida Lake, but that's a serious fish. And it's extra amazing because the sturgeons have been a threatened species for a long time, and... The scientists have been monitoring their population, so they catch these fish to see how their population's doing. And the fact that we have 139-pound sturgeon in the lake means that they're doing a really good job with their science. So hopefully we see those numbers keep going up and we just keep seeing bigger and bigger sturgeons. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, We hope that the numbers go up and it's not just that one single (laughs) fish evading capture for so long. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, I'm Jasmine Mack. I'm Laura Mortalidi. And we're your hosts today for Locally Sourced Science. Today we have several interviews for you to listen to. This is the second episode in this series about Shoals Marine Laboratory. First up, we have Dr. Mark Shabati interviewing Dr. Jennifer Seavey and Dr. Liz Craig from the Shoals Marine Laboratory TURN Conservation Program. So let's get into it. So let me set the scene here just for the ambiance. So we are on Epodor Island and Shoals Marine Laboratory is located here. And at Shoals Marine Laboratory, there's a vibrant scene of scientists, undergraduate researchers, undergraduate students who are taking courses, professors who are teaching these courses, and of course the fantastic staff who runs the island. The island is administered by Cornell University and the University of New Hampshire. The Isle of Shoals has multiple islands. In addition to Appledore Island, there is White Island and Seavey Island. And the reason why I'm mentioning those two, because that's where the TURN research happens. Yeah, so we're at Shoals Marine Laboratory, which is located on Appledore Island, which is in Kittery, Maine. We're six miles out to sea from Rye, New Hampshire. And my name is Dr. Jennifer Seavey, and I'm the John M. Kingsbury Executive Director for the lab. Arctic terns have actually one of the longest migration of any animal on Earth, and they'll go from the Arctic to the Antarctic. This, there's literally two to four pairs of Arctic terns in any given year on White and Seavey Island. That's the furthest south that they breed. Most of them are way north of here. Yeah. So the White and Seavey Island Tern Project has been ongoing from since 1997 when New Hampshire Audubon and New Hampshire Fish and Game got together and restored a tern colony that was historically in the Isles of Shoals. 
And it was a really great test of uh, Steve Kress, Dr. Steve Kress, who's affiliated with Cornell's Lab of Ornithology. He developed methods for restoring uh, seabird colonies using pu and puffins in his case. But he developed the methodology around using decoys and playing songs. And so that's what was employed to start this colony. And Scholes was involved from the very beginning to support that research in many, many different aspects. But when I got here, I was looking for my research project. And at that time, the contract for monitoring the colony that the state of New Hampshire Fish and Game offers was up, and so I applied. They restored it, they put it there in the first place, so they have that interest, plus there's federal and state protection, so they have that interest for why they want to maintain and protect this colony. So we get a grant every year from them that helps us do that work. So now we've expanded a monitoring program, which has some excellent baseline research data into um, very collaborative study looking at habitat management with a botanist, looking at what they eat and how what they're eating is changing over time and space, and we're working with some geneticists. We collect poop samples from the terns, and we can look at what they've eaten. We do blind observations from the bird blinds, and we can see what they're eating too, and actually comparing the DNA work to the field work is a really important step because field work is happening more widely. And so we want to see what we're missing and what we're catching, these two different methods. And we're working with fisheries biologists to explore what is available in the fisheries for the terns around here, which greatly overlap with commercial fish. So it's really important from a fisheries point of view to understand how much these birds are interacting with the fishery. And we also see a lot of value for these birds to basically be flying fisheries biologists. They are sampling the fish population during a time, a life period for the fish that nobody else is sampling. It's the first year of life. This is actually active work that we're doing right now, exploring whether or not those turns can be used as indicators for that fishery. So uh, we're developing this as a potential tool to help forecasting models. And usually, seabird biologists look at the fish as the value of that resource to the bird population. We're trying to also flip that on its head. What's the value of what these birds are bringing in for data? How valuable is that for the fisheries? White and CV Island are far enough away from Appledore. It's about, on a zodiac, maybe a 15-minute boat ride. But predators can come in and disrupt that turn colony. And I mean like a peregrine falcon, a bald eagle, could come, or a gull could come in and disrupt that colony. And if we didn't live over there and have a presence on the island, we wouldn't be able to interrupt the predation process quick enough. So a lot of our time is spent actually literally protecting the terns, but our presence on the island, and that's why we keep a 24-hour presence on the island, is enough to deter a lot of the predators. And so that's, so we have basically a remote field station over there, and they live in a historic uh, lighthouse. That lighthouse is actually where Celia Thaxter grew up. Yeah, um, her dad was a lighthouse keeper, and then they moved to Smuddiness, and then they opened the big hotel here on Appledore. Um, so we're out on White and Seavey Island from May until August when the birds are done breeding. I was curious about this research. 
with these beautiful seabirds, the terns. So I traveled over with some students from the Applied Science Communication course at Shores to White Island, that's right next to Seabee Island. Ben, can you describe what you see right now? So I'm looking around and I see a lot of ocean. There's these waves and there's foam on the sea. I see these whitish granite rocks. There's thousands and thousands of turns. And right behind us, there's a big, tall, white lighthouse and it has a black roof and a weather station on top. How was the view from the lighthouse? It was amazing. You can see everywhere out into the Gulf of Maine, out into the Atlantic, and you can see the Shoals Islands and even some seals and lots of birds. Right now we're on White Island, which is in New Hampshire at the south end of the Isles of Shoals. And we're here, myself, my name is Liz Craig. I'm the um, manager of the Seabird uh, Turn Conservation Project here. And we've got Alia Caldwell here, who's one of the seabird technicians. And um, you also met Amber Litterer, who's our second seabird technician this summer. And what is this project that you're working on here? Yeah. So this is a project run by Shoals Marine Lab and funded by New Hampshire Fish and Game. And our purpose, this uh, turn conservation project, the purpose is to implement um, management, monitoring, and research of threatened and endangered terns in New Hampshire. my fourth summer here at Shoals and before I came here I was a, a graduate student at Cornell and the Cornell Biological Field Station which is at um, Oneida Lake. Also a tern colony um, up there so common terns also breed inland so there's lots of them breeding in the Great Lakes and there's a really awesome colony of about 300 to 500 pairs that breed on Oneida and um, when I first started graduate school um, the fellow Milo Richmond who um, had been working on that colony for decades, was just retiring and looking for someone else to um, to take over the management of the colony, to protect it basically, um, keep it going. And that was my introduction to terns. I'd never worked with terns before. I'd always studied cormorants, gulls, herons, egrets, ibis, um, but that that was kind of a happy coincidence that I got to start working at, with terns and I guess that's helped me get this job. introduce myself. I know you know I'm Amber, but we typically do 10 days on and four days off, and that's why there's three of us, so there can usually be two of us on at any one time, and we'll rotate through. Mm -hmm. And how does the day look like? Um, it depends on where the birds are um, in their journey to parenthood. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so typically this time of year, uh, we have some productivity plots that we have set out there, and the productivity plots are a closed-in, fenced-in area on the island where we can look at the uh, number of nests, the density of the nests, and the reproductive uh, success and fledge rate of those nests, um, and scale that up to the whole island to get mm -hmm. an idea of how, or assess how the whole island is doing. Uh, so right now we are looking, checking for nests um, as new birds 
are returning to the island from winter migration where uh, field readable bands were trying to uh, get an idea of who everybody is who comes through. We have general habitat management to create more nesting habitat uh, on the island itself uh, this time of year before there's chicks running around. Predator dissuasion, making sure uh, that they're able to nest. Further along in the summer, we are focused on weighing and banding and measuring the growth of the chicks. And uh, we do our annual census where we get a count of all of the nests on the island, the number of eggs, the clutch size of all of those. Um, and we send those numbers off to approximately 19 other islands in the Gulf of Maine that are also saving room for seabirds. So we're gonna trap birds today with the hopes of maybe catching an already banded bird that we can read its federal band. Uh, if we get an unbanded bird, we'll band it. So you can see that, I can see one right here. You can mm -hmm. see the adult is kind of interested, walking around, kind of annoyed. <laughs> What'd you do to my nest? And it can take them a little bit to figure out how to get in, but eventually they either figure it out or we give up. <laughs> no, no, wrong side. Gotta go around the front. Wow, it's incredible. Liz, can you quickly explain this trapping process? Yes, so we're using walk-in traps where the nest itself is the bait. So we place the, the trap over the nest. Actually, there's a bird going in right now. The bird is going in the, the trap door to incubate its eggs, and now it's in the trap. There's nothing actually holding it in there. It could walk right back out, but if we walk up to it, it'll be startled and flush into the back of the trap. Um, so Alia, go for it. There, there he goes, he's already in. Uh, yeah, just watch your feet, remember? doing here is very similar if you want to sit here that's fine it's very similar to what they're doing in the banding station we collect a lot of the same data so could somebody can you please read out loud the number on this band starting there starting at the seam one four one two do I say the dash um the, you don't need the dash five six four zero eight and can you read that back to her? One, four, one, two, five, six, four, zero, eight. Yeah. Happy with that? Okay. So the first thing we do is actually band the bird because that way if we something happens and we actually lose it, like Alia has an extreme sneeze <laughs> and loses the bird, at the very least we'll have a band on it, if not all the rest of the data. So, um, so we put the band on first. And... As, as chicks, I band with the federal band on the right and the field readable on the left, but as adults, I do the opposite. This is the left leg, I can do this. Um, just so that we have a little bit of extra information just at a glance that would tell me that I banded this bird as an adult. That's just, if we couldn't actually read the field readable, knowing that it's on a different leg is kind of providing us a little bit of extra information. How are you supposed to be able to read that? Well, you have to have it in your hand. You can't read it on the bird. It's just too small. So 
since it's too small, uh, yeah. we're using these plastic field readable bands in addition. So that this you could read over here. Like, can you read what this one says? Yeah, so from a little bit of a distance, just with your bare eyes, and from a further distance with binoculars, you could read this. So pair, if we pair the information, and you can see we're recording both the federal and the field readable here, we pair it, we, we report it, so that anybody who sees F-22 would be able to report it to the bird banding lab and know exactly what bird it was. How is banding? Oh, it's really cool. Yeah? They loved it. That so bird had never been banded before, so That's they, awesome. they did the whole process. Awesome, awesome. It was, it was so great. cool, I got to hold a bird. It was really cool. Uh, we got to see uh, uphand techniques of measuring birds and um, just recording data. And it was cool to see how they catch them in the nets, how they place the net over the, the cage over the eggs, and then they just walk in. And uh, then we released it and it was really cool. Oh, I love the ocean. I love how you can have, just look to your right and you'll see the islands and the people and all the science that's going on. And then you look to the left and it's like just the ocean. It's insane. It's great to hear from Liz. I used to work with her at the field station where they caught the sturgeon. Really? That's great. It sounds like she's still doing great things. So next up, we have our guest in studio, Lindsay Baxter, who's actually a student here at Cornell. And she's going to tell you a little bit how you can get involved in citizen science. Hey, I'm Lindsay Baxter, and I am an entomology student here at Cornell. And I'm here to talk about a new citizen science project that we're launching through the Northeast Regional Vector Center. Um, we're tracking the invasive Asian tiger mosquito. That's a pest in the Northeast region, and it's also capable of transmitting disease. So we're asking people to trap them in their yard using household materials and then reporting back to us what they find. Wow, that's, that's really cool. So um, are these traps able to trap other uh, mosquitoes as well? Yes, there are a couple of different species in the Northeast that are container breeding, but they're pretty distinct. These mosquitoes that we're looking for are striped, black and white, and very easy to see with the eye. We're asking people to take pictures of them, mm -hmm. and we can actually tell which species um, is in the image just, just from a cell phone picture. That's great. Where can listeners find out how they can get involved? Sure. Um, just the Northeast Regional Vector Center uh, website. It's neregionalvectorcenter.com. Great. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. That was great. Next up, we have Marie Nickerson discussing the Celia Faxter Garden at Shoals Marine Lab. As soon as I heard about Epidore Island and Shoals Marine Laboratory, I heard about Celia Faxter. So one day after lunch, I took a short walk down to Celia Thexter Garden, where I found some enthusiastic volunteers who were happy to tell me about Celia Thexter and about this well-visited and well-known garden. 
Uh, my name is Marie Nickerson. I'm the steward for Celia Thaxter's garden here on Appledore Island. Uh, we're actually in kind of a suburb of Kittery, Maine, offshore. So what should our listeners know about this garden? Why is this so famous? Celia Thaxter was kind of a heroine in her own right. She was an artist. She was a writer. She was a well-known gardener, well-respected among her peers. Uh, had a very large circle of musicians and uh, uh, friends that were musicians and artists and poets and writers. And she welcomed them all to her garden and the family hotel here on Appledore. And that was about mid-1800s to about 1900, maybe a little bit uh, before that. She was actually uh, born in 1835. I believe she died in 1889. And though the family carried on the tradition for a while, um, her heyday was, you know, around 1860 or so. She invited a lot of people uh, to the garden, and she had a wonderful salon where she focused and showcased a lot of their paintings. Uh, musicians came to play for her guests, and we are trying to carry on the tradition of the garden itself in its exact location. So how does the garden look like today, and how does it compare to how it looked like? back in the days? Well, thanks to uh, Dr. Kingsbury in the 1970s, the garden has been recreated in its exact footstep. It is exactly where Celia worked on it uh, back in the 1800s. We have been able to collect as much as, we're estimating about 85 to 90 percent of the flowers here are heirloom varieties now. Uh, there are a couple of them we don't grow because they're considered invasives and there are one or two more that we're having difficulty finding or having them survive the winters here. But overall we've done a pretty good recreation and we are trying to keep the garden planted exactly the way she had it in her famous book An Island Garden which was published the year of her death. So what species can visitors find in the garden right now? And what stage the garden is in, in this moment? It's at a typical spring stage right now, although most of our plants uh, might have a jump on what would be in a typical local garden by about two weeks. Our goal is to have as much of it in flower for when the tours start, which typically is mid-June, and to keep them in flower through subsequent plantings or direct sowing up until mid to late August. The garden consists mostly of annuals because it was known as a cutting garden, and the more you cut them, the more they produce for you. So um, we do have to replant about 75% of the garden every year. So you mentioned garden tours. Who does usually come here to see the garden? People who have it on a bucket list. Everybody who's uh, into, a lot of people who are into gardening or uh, even writing or poetry or Child Hassam's artwork have obtained the Book and Island Garden for the, you know, the, the sake of having it. And you can't help but fall in love with the schematic she has of what her garden looked like, that one snapshot in time. So um, people who are avid gardeners and have that book have got this vision burned into their brain. And when they get here and they get off the boat, they can't wait to get to the garden because they know what they expect to see. And that's what we try to, we try not to let them down. How do you maintain this garden? Because it's a lot of work. 
It is a lot of work, but I rely on wonderful volunteers. Uh, today I have volunteers from the Cornell, Ithaca, Albany area, and they come out here. This is their third summer, I think, uh, spending a few days with me. And everybody gets to share the wealth. They're not so close to the ocean as we're fortunate to be. And uh, I do welcome master gardeners to sign up. Uh, there's a sign-up sheet. And I try to get at least two people out here every week until fall. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, would you be willing to introduce yourself just very quickly, who you are and where you are coming from? I'm Victoria Blaisdell, and I'm from Slingerlands, New York. I'm Carol Henry. I'm the Master Gardener Coordinator for uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension in, in Albany County. Christine Saplin from Altamont, New York, another Master Gardener from Albany County. Uh, Sue Gutman from Bethlehem, New York. I do hope that visitors here enjoy the richness that we have. It's a really important part of the campus because Shoals Marine Lab is about all things natural. And it's about researching, uh, you know, kind of the root of living things. And essentially, that's what Celia was hoping uh, her garden would convey as a message to the visitors. She loved seeds, starting things from seed, and never lost the wonder that is in a growing plant. So we hope they understand how the two of them are so closely tied. And it's not just a garden to come and play in the dirt, but it really is to appreciate what is in a seed and the beauty of, of evolving life. Wow, that was really great hearing about Celia Daxter's garden and how they're really trying to get people interested about science and about life in general. Um, speaking about getting people interested in science, there's an event coming up. Laura? Definitely. The Graduate Women in Science are hosting their monthly Science on Tap event. Uh, it's going to be at 7 p.m. on Wednesday, July 31st, and it's at the North Star Houses, Casita de Pulares at 1201 North Tioga Street, and they have two different speakers. So the two talks are Small But Mighty, Why We Use Worm to Study How Cells Work, which is by Melissa De Groot, who's a PhD candidate in molecular biology and genetics. And we also have another one. Science's Next Top Models, Engineering Living Tissues in the Lab to Study Disease. This talk's by Dr. Anna Maria Porras, she has her Ph.D. in biomedical engineering. Yeah, those both look very interesting. Mm -hmm. Do you think you're going to maybe go try and see that? Or? Definitely. Go see. Have a beer. Thank you again for joining us today on Locally Source Science. You heard today two interviews conducted by Dr. Mark Shavadi. The first interview was with Dr. Jennifer Seavey and Dr. Liz Craig from the Shoals Marine Laboratory. To find out more information, visit shoalsmarinelaboratory.org. And the second interview was from Marie Nickerson from the Celia Thaxter Garden. 
We had a guest speaker, Lindsay Baxter, talking about her citizen science project with the Asian tiger mosquito. You can follow her on Twitter at Baxter Lindsay. Also, if you want to learn more about the sturgeon that we spoke about at the beginning of the podcast, Cornell News has a nice piece on that. And to follow Science on Tap, you can follow the Cornell Graduate Women in Science account. Their Twitter handle is GWIS Cornell. And if you would like to follow Locally Sourced Science on Twitter, our handle is FLX Science Radio. If you want to learn more about us, you can visit us online at locallysourcedscience.org. And you can also go on our website to listen to previous episodes. Or you can download previous episodes from your favorite podcast app. And our wonderful music that you heard today was produced by Chacha Giannotti and Joe Lewis. Thank you again so much for joining us. I'm Jasmine Mack. I'm Laura Mortaliti. And we hope you have a great day. Science Science out. out!